They say there are no two neighbors more diverse than Australia and Indonesia. Orang bilang tak ada dua tetangga yang punya perbedaan sebanyak Australia dan Indonesia. But we think more alike than you know. Tapi kami pikir ada lebih banyak kesamaan dari yang Anda tahu. Welcome to Oz Indo in 30. I'm Samantha Yap. Selamat datang di Oz Indo dalam 30. Saya Nurina Safitri. Australia and Indonesia relations began way back as early as the 1600s with extensive interactions between indigenous Australians and Makassan people from the eastern part of Indonesia. Hubungan Australia dan Indonesia dimulai sejak lama. Bahkan di tahun 1600-an tercatat adanya interaksi mendalam antara warga aborigin Australia dengan pelaut Makassan dari wilayah timur Indonesia. Makassan people would frequently visit the northern Australian coast in search of tripang, sea cucumber, which they would bring back to Indonesia. Para pelaut Makassan seringkali mengunjungi pantai utara Australia untuk mencari tripang yang mereka bawa kembali ke Indonesia. From then on, a deep cultural ancestral connection between Makassan people and the Yonggu indigenous community has grown. And this can be seen today in Yerkala Batik, whose motive has been initially created by Aboriginal Australian artist Narurapu Wunungmura. Sejak saat itu, hubungan sejarah dan budaya yang mendalam antara orang Makassan dengan komunitas Aborigin Yolngu terus berkembang. Kini, jejak hubungan mereka bisa dilihat dalam karya Batik Yirkala yang motif awalnya dibuat oleh seniman Aborigin Nawurapu Bununmura. In this episode, we will explore how the beautiful colors and patterns of batik are a strong link between our two countries. Pada episode kali ini, kami akan mengeksplorasi betapa keindahan warna dan motif batik bisa mencerminkan ikatan kuat di antara dua negara. On the show today, we'll be joined by Wayan Jara Sastrawan, a Balinese Australian and lecturer at the University of Sydney. He is a member of Perspectives on the Past, POP, a research group at the University of Sydney that studies new and alternative approaches to studying the past of Southeast Asia. Jara joins me right now. We are at the Botanical Gardens in Sydney. That's right. Thanks for having me, Sam. So we just want to get to know you a little bit more. Could you tell me a bit about yourself and your upbringing? I was born in Australia, in Sydney. My dad is from Bali and my mum's from Australia. And we moved together to Bali to live when I was around three. Uh, and so I spent most of my primary schooling in Bali, uh, in the town of Ubud. And for high school, I moved back here. So I've spent a good third of my life living in Indonesia, uh, but also in an Australian environment there. You're wearing a really nice batik shirt right now. And you look very Indonesian from the outside. So how did you become so focused on Southeast Asian history? I think that my fascination with The region and the region's history began back in primary school in Indonesia, actually, when I learnt about the history of Indonesia as a nation and the early states that appeared before Dutch colonialism. I always felt like that was some of the most interesting parts of the Indonesian curriculum there. So it really goes back a long way. And in Australia, at the University of Sydney, I found a place where I can really study in particular the history of Indonesia, but the history of Southeast Asia more generally in quite a lot of depth. 
in Jakarta we will be joined by Marlisa Supeno. I'm meeting with her over coffee and rice <laughs> in a bistro in Jakarta. Marlisa is an Indonesian diplomat and an inspirator for President Jokowi. And she is also a collector of traditional hand-woven fabrics and Kosani 2015 alumni. Hi Marlisa. Hi Mbak Nurina. Are you feeling good now? Yes, I am. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, is being diplomat part of your childhood dream? Please tell us about your background. Uh, okay, so uh, basically I I dreamt of being a diplomat since I was fourth grade in the elementary school because I uh, know that one of my friend's dad is a diplomat. And that's when I asked, what is a diplomat? What do they do? And um, I knew the information that if we become a diplomat, we can travel around the world. And that's when I decided that I wanted to be a diplomat. So it was just as simple as because I want to travel around the world. And Marlisa, you also act as an inspirator for President Jokowi. How frequent you meet world leaders? So basically for the last two and a half years, I've been traveling. Uh, with uh, Pak Jokowi and Ibu Iriana. Uh, for the incoming visits, uh, I also uh, become the interpreter for either one. Uh, usually I'm with Ibu and sometimes I'm with uh, Bapak. And I've met many leaders. I've met uh, Pak Obama, uh, I've met uh, Turnbull, I met uh, the Prime Minister and President of India. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's exciting, nervous. Yeah, it's fun. Okay, <laughs> I can tell that it's fun. <laughs> Now tell us your involvement in Indonesia and Australia relations. Did it start from your professional work or personal story? Basically, it's a mixture um, uh, because I'm a diplomat. I got the Australia Award in 2012, and that's where uh, when I studied in Canberra. Uh, Australia at the Australian National University and during my two years uh, time there I involved with many um, activities of uh, both countries relationships all right and then how did your massive interest in traditional fabrics start because for me I, I saw your fabrics from the social media and how did it start uh, basically in 2011 before I went to Australia I had a brand I had a ethnic uh, back brand it's called Manessa And it was born because of my passion to Indonesia, Indonesian traditional fabrics. I always love the beautiful colors of uh, Indonesia traditional fabrics because it's very colorful. And uh, in 2010, I started collecting uh, Indonesian batik, Indonesian tenun, and then I decided to make an ethnic uh, bag brand. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I was given the scholarship a year after. So um, the you know the back business was postponed for a while, but the passion of collecting Indonesian fabrics was still there. So when I was in Australia, I purchased many Indonesian batik and tenun online. And how many pieces do you have now? Maybe 200, oh. maybe more. Wow. Yeah, uh, but some of them are already made bags. And when did uh, the first time you acknowledged uh, Australian batik that we called your color? Uh, when I was in Australia, uh, when I studied there, uh, I also, be uh, I told you, I uh, became the interpreter of Indonesian delegates who went there for, um, I think, study visit or comparat uh, comparat uh, comparative study between Indonesia and Australia. And I had the opportunity to visit Darwin two times. And that's where I, um, I think I closely engaged with the indigenous Australians and their uh, artwork including the you know including the traditional fabrics 
and yeah, I learn a bit, not a lot, but I learn a bit about um, how they make their artwork, including the fabric, and what influenced them. In this episode, Jara will be telling us more about the wonderful world of Batik and what it can tell us about history, while Marlisa will actually take us through history and talk about Batik that comes from Australia. Jara, today we're going to be talking about Batik. You're wearing a Batik shirt right now, and you always do. For our listeners who may not know what Batik is, could you please summarise what it is in a nutshell? Batik is the name of a particular technique of colouring and dyeing cloths. So it's not weaving. It's taking a pre-woven cloth, usually cotton, and applying wax patterns to it and then dyeing the cloth with the wax still on it. What that does is it dyes only those sections of the cloth where the wax hasn't touched. And then the idea is that after doing that, you can wash it, take the wax off, retrace a different pattern, and then dye it again. And so this allows you to overlay patterns of different colours really quite intricately and thereby produce the beautiful patterns that Patek is known for. So right now I'm looking at Jara's shirt and it's brown, black and white, so not a lot of colours and it's like a nice, I guess, is it Javanese brown? Could you please explain, you know, where your shirt comes from and also on that matter, why do Batik patterns vary by region? So the shirt I'm wearing now is from Jogjakarta, from uh, the city in central Java. It's from a department store there that's particularly known for specialising in batik. Uh, and you can get batik across the whole price range from very cheap, easy-to-wear clothes to incredibly expensive silken shawls and that kind of thing. So batik is a big market. The colour scheme of the pattern that I'm wearing is particularly characteristic of Jogjakarta as well. So as you mentioned, the brown, dark blue almost verging on black and the white background is standard for what is known as the royal cities of central Java, that is Jogja and Solo. And those cities, being the centres of old kingdoms, developed batik as a very strict and formal kind of genre of clothing. So they had a whole range of different patterns that all had names and categories and classifications. And those classifications related to aristocratic privileges. So in the central Javanese courts, only certain nobles and royalty were permitted to wear sarongs and clothes with particular patterns on them. So the kinds of patterns that we are familiar with from central Java is closely associated with the aristocratic culture of those places. This kind of central Javanese batik is one of the most recognisable because of the characteristic browns and dark blues and whites, but other regions of Indonesia have their own quite different styles. So the north coast of Java has quite different vibe. They use much stronger, brighter colours, uh, especially known for their use of strong red, which produces a much more vibrant palette. And also they depict more naturalistically everyday things, flora, fauna, lots of animals, and more intricate and free-flowing patterns, by contrast to the central Javanese ones that are a lot more geometrical and symmetrical. So they tend to like diamonds and boxes and stuff, whereas the north coast Javanese are a lot more free-flowing. There are also batik traditions outside of Java. Sumatra, and particularly the coastal cities of Sumatra have produced batik for a very long time, and they have their own distinctive styles. For example, Bukulu, on the west coast of Sumatra, 
because of a stronger Islamic current in, in that part of Indonesia, like to incorporate Islamic motifs and designs. So rather than depicting the natural world, uh, they often use patterns of writing, an Arabic script, on the batik patterns themselves, representing the beauty of the word as understood in Islamic religion. Batik is also produced in other parts of Indonesia, outside Java. Uh, Sumatra has a whole range of different traditions of batik. One of the more striking ones is from the west coast city of Bengkulu in Sumatra, which uses writing as the main theme of the, of the design rather than objects in the natural world. And this stems from a tradition of Islamic art where calligraphy and the written word was the most appropriate object for visual representation. What about this pattern that I, I always often see when I'm out shopping in Jakarta? It's of clouds and it's very like sharp and often it's either in a blue or a red colour. That pattern is a very famous trademark, if you like, of the city of Chiribon, which is on the west northwest coast of Java. So it's related, because it's on the north coast, it's related to those other north coast styles, which is why, as you observed, it's got very sharp definition of line and bright uses of red and blue. But the cloud motif, which is called in Javanese Magamandung, that's kind of the, the word, the phrase means the kind of imposing clouds or the uh, dominating clouds of the sky, a reference to the kinds of weather patterns that you get in the rainy season in Java. They use that particular kind of very strong line and solid shapes to really produce quite a, a striking and in relation to the other styles of batik, not so intricate, but nevertheless very effective for that lack of intricacy because it has bolder, stronger shapes that don't get lost in the detail that dominates a lot of other styles of batik. So what can batik patterns tell us about the history of these different regions? One really interesting example of a batik pattern reflecting the history behind it is that of the very far eastern city of Banyuwangi or the region of Banyuwangi of Java. So it's very far in the east, right next to Bali. And Blambangan, at that time, Banyuwangi was one of the last remaining non-Islamic kingdoms after much of Java had already converted to Islam. And the batik patterns that you see there seem to be a combination of Pasisia north coast patterns, but in the colours of the Jogja court. They seem to be an odd mixture of what otherwise are two quite separate traditions. And the reason for this is because although Banyuwangi is geographically a coastal city and culturally is part of that north coast environment and therefore its batik tradition draws on that. Blambangan was a specific target for Jogja-based conquest. The state called Mataram, which was based in Jogja throughout the 17th century, repeatedly not only invaded and conquered Blambangan but also deported its people back to Jogja and kept them there as royal bodyguards and special troops. So the transportation of people back and forth due to this relationship of essentially conquest and colonialism with Jogja on the one hand and Blambangan on the other meant that the Banyuwangi Batiks absorbed these Jogja features. And that can be seen immediately. As soon as you look at Banyuwangi Batik, you can see how these two traditions, the courtly traditions of Jogja and Solo and the 
freer traditions of the North Coast are interacting due to this historical background of the region. Immigrant communities have been crucial to the development of batik designs. Could you give me an example of how and why? The reason that they're important is firstly because of their major role in the economics of batik production. So the foundation of factories by Chinese and Indo-European communities, generally run by women. And on the other hand, the role of consumers from those communities, thereby affecting the design and taste of batik in general. I've already explained how North Coast and Central Javanese batik look different because they cater to different audiences. Similarly, in these parts of the batik market where you have predominantly Chinese consumers or European consumers or producers, you get the aesthetics of those cultures entering into the batik design. You have motifs from Chinese art entering into batik, the depiction of dragons and certain geometric patterns. And in the case of the European influence, you have a preference in European-oriented batik for still life kind of images, so bouquets of flowers and other kind of domestic settings. So when we look at batik, we shouldn't just see, oh, this is a this is a stereotypically Indonesian thing, or even worse, it is a stereotypically Javanese thing, because batik has always been an interconnected and it connects different kinds of communities who happen to be in Indonesia, and incidentally, in other parts of Southeast Asia as well. So I just asked Jara, what can Australians tell about Indonesians based on the batik that they're wearing? And he was saying that it goes much deeper than that, because... When there's formal events and a lot of foreigners come to Indonesia, they wear batik shirts, and that's nice, that's respectful. But according to you, Jara, it's more than that. It, there's a deeper meaning behind it, right? People tend to see batik just as a symbol of Indonesia, merely as a sign that this is what Indonesians wear. And so if you want to show respect, for example, at a formal event, you wear it too. And that that's often, for many people, the end of the story. But I was referring then to the question that you asked me earlier about the particular pattern that you found really appealing and had a personal impact on you, the Magamandung pattern from Chiribon. And I was using that as an example of how batik might be a kind of more substantial way of connecting Australians to Indonesia because it's not just that batik is Indonesian or represents Indonesia. It also represents smaller communities, more regional communities. It represents the people who created them, their historical background, you know, why do they produce these patterns, who who taught them how to produce those patterns, how do they fare in a different kind of, you know, more commercialized market now than, than they may have experienced when they first began their careers. So those kinds of smaller stories and more personal stories, I think, are more meaningful in the end because it makes people feel an ownership over specific features of batik and they can think things like, well, this pattern is special to me for this reason. Not just, I like Indonesia, and therefore I like batik, but developing those kinds of yeah, more personal connection that's based on more than the batik as a symbol of the nation as a whole. I think that's really cool. So I think for Australians who may not have been to Indonesia, if you ever do, and you see someone wearing batik shirt, I guess a conversation starter would be to ask where it came from. So Marlisa, as a traditional fabric collector, what do you know about batik yirkala? Uh, Yirkala is actually a place um, in Australia 
I think it's located somewhere near the Northern Territory uh, state, and it's a place of indigenous Australians. And that's the uh, place where they also develop uh, their handicraft and also their artwork. And Batik Yirkala uh, comes from uh, that area. And uh, basically the process of making uh, the traditional fabric is uh, closely uh, influenced by their uh, traditional ceremony. What, what is typical about this batik? I mean, the motif and maybe the color, what is typical about that? The motif is, uh, is influenced by, I said before, the traditional ceremony. So usually it's um, related with dots. Uh, because dot actually symbolizes their place of doing ritual. And it's also actually influenced by their traditional or their history. So sometimes in, in the traditional artwork or um, traditional fabrics, they also uh, paint the, like for example, animal or uh, the process of, uh, uh, for example, uh, doing ritual or maybe their encounter with, uh, you know, with uh, other ethnic or maybe other people uh, in the past. So basically, the batik, uh, the batik yirkala uh, motifs also reflect a story. And actually, how does it represent Australia-Indonesia long-time relation? Is that connected to the story that you told me? I I know that uh, actually the connection between Australia and Indonesia rooted back hundreds of years ago when the uh, sailor from uh, Bugis Makassar or what indigenous Australians refer to as Makassan people, they went to Australia, the northern part of Australia, to look for teripang or sea cucumber. So there was a, a trade relationship between indigenous Australians and the sailor from Sulawesi from uh, Bugis Makassar. And in some of the, I don't know, uh, I haven't found any Yirkala Batik motif that explain about that story but I know that uh, some or maybe many of their artwork also reflect the story between Indonesia and uh, Australia, like the traditional history of Indonesia and Australia, because in many of their uh, artwork of ind indigenous Australians, um, they put like tripang, uh, sea, sea cucumber, and also some also uh, reflect the ship or the traditional boat that uh, the sailor uh, then used as a vehicle to go to. Um, Northern Australia to trade for sea cu cucumber. And I heard from you previously that um, the Makassan people did trade with the ab Aborigines in um, Northern Australia. How did actually the Aborigines economically benefit from Makassan people back then? I think they were uh, quite well off, yeah, because uh, taripang or sea cucumber was even then a very expensive uh, commodity, and it was quite a um, not rare, but many demand of sea cucumber uh, was there in the past. So uh, people from uh, you know Makassan people they uh, purchase a lot of uh, sea cucumber, and even more than uh, economic benefit, I think there were also assimilation of culture and also acculturation be between uh, people. From from Bugis Makassar and uh, indigenous Australians. And we can actually find, I, I forgot the name, but they, there is this one part of uh, Northern Territory area uh, in which uh, some of the elder or old people of uh, Bugis Makassar, they were there. And from your Kalabatic itself that Australian Aborigine has, what kind of cultural or historical values can you infer? Well, I, I think it's a, uh, somehow it uh, depicts a long history of, of both countries, yeah, of Australia and Indonesia, that apparently even before the colonization, we already had the relationship. And I think it should be 
um, enhanced now because even in the past, even before you know the the white so-called white people came to Australia, even before they came, we already had the relationship. So I think, for me, it's 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 something that we have to value and also we have to explore because uh, nowadays I don't think many people know about this. And when you participated in Coast Indy 2015 in Durban, you got the opportunity to look at the two countries' historical connection much closer. Yeah. What was your conclusion? I I think maybe this is more to Australian uh, side. Yeah? Um, I think uh, what I learned about indigenous Australians is uh, Australians also have to empower them because they actually have the potential, but sometimes uh, they just don't have the opportunity. And I think that's also the notion that we always promote, that we have to have uh, equal opportunity for people um, who are in marginalized area or people who are disadvantaged. Um, I think same as Indonesia, we have many traditional um, ethnic or uh, tribe that still lives in the, in the forest and they don't have equal opportunity. Our development should reach them too. Okay, thank you so much, Marlisa. Thank you, Mbak. We like to wrap up every episode by learning about a fun fact or slang word from our guests. Marlisa, what's a cool fun fact or slang word that you would like to share from Indonesia? I think many or every Indonesian is always kekinian or we always want to be um, up to date and we don't want to be left behind and we have to be one step ahead than anyone else. Um, why I said like that? Because when I was in Australia, it was in 2012, I started to use PATH. And even people in Canberra, they, they were still in their excitement of uh, using Facebook. And we already used PATH and people asked me, what is PATH? You know, this is PATH. You only have a few hundred um, friends and you can actually uh, filter the posts that you want people to see. And nobody knew about it. And uh, for example, in Indonesia, we have now many places to hang out that we call Kekinian. So if we know that other people never been there and we will say that ah you're not a Kenyan you're not you know you're not up to date yes you're left behind we know better than you and you know it happens in every aspects of life of Indonesian so I think yeah a Kenyan has become a trend now in Indonesia not yeah. only among youth but no no even even my dad and okay. my mom <laughs> they have pets I don't think parents in Australia have pets <laughs> okay. Jara, what's a cool fun fact that you would like to share from Australia? I'd like to share a bit of Australian history. In the 19th century, Western Australia was being opened up for agriculture and the pastoralists were annoyed because large flocks of emus would enter into their branches, into their, uh, into their farms and damage their crops and attack their grazing animals. And so the Western Australian government enlisted the help of the colonial military in order to defeat the emus and to drive them off pastoralist land. So they used machine guns mounted on, on trucks in order to sweep away the herds. The outcome of this war was a defeat for the Australian military and a victory for the emus. The emus were able to outmaneuver and outrun the military forces and continued to damage farmers' crops with impunity. So the emus won? Yes. The emus were victorious and for many years afterwards, the farmers were unable to deal with the emu problem despite launching a full-scale attack on them. 
Thank you for listening to Oz Indo in 30. See you at our next episode. Terima kasih atas perhatian Anda untuk Aus Indo dalam 30. Sampai jumpa lagi di episode selanjutnya.